We are in part eight of our Living into the Kingdom series, and I entitled today's message, Kingdom Clash. And in this series, we've been talking about the idea that there is the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Satan, and then there's the kingdom of God. We are members of the kingdom of God, and we are here to expand God's influence and his kingdom here in the world, which means very specific things. We're trying to live into that. But when we go out into the world and we start looking at how things are, they appear very complicated. It, nothing seems to kind of go the way you think it should go. You can't quite figure out who the good guys are and the bad guys are and the good stuff is and the bad stuff is. All of it seems a little bit complicated. You know God's on the throne, but somehow it doesn't seem to be working out that way. So what is going on? So we've been leaning into that a lot in this series. And I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank with some thoughts. I'm going to read through a list of things I believe to be true. They may or may not align with your current views, but I would encourage you to consider them rather strongly because I think that it's going to sharpen our ability to discern and navigate the world. All right, here's my thoughts. Not all those who claim to be Christian are Christian. Not all those who believe themselves to be Christians are Christian. Not all religious things are healthy. Not all religious people are healthy. Not all churches are healthy. Not all church leaders are good guys. Not all secular things are bad. Not all Christian media is good. Not all sermons are helpful. And not all wisdom in the world is wrong. You see, I think that we have a great temptation to classify, categorize, and stereotype in big general groupings. And I never think that is a wise way to live. I think that we need to be critical thinkers. I think that we need to think through some of the mess. I think it's very dangerous to broad brush an entire group of people. Well, they're like this, they're like that. Anytime you get into that type of phraseology, you're in trouble. We don't want to do that. There's a lot more nuance to all of it. Unfortunately, we don't always use the right criteria as to how to sift and sort things, we tend to call what is familiar good and what is unfamiliar or strange bad. But let me ask you a question. What if you're familiar with what is wrong? For example, let's say you grow up in a dysfunctional home and you have patterns that are familiar to you, so they're easy for you, but then you go into a healthy environment, but it's unfamiliar and you call it wrong. That's a danger, yeah? We have to be critically thinking through, is this right and good in the eyes of the Lord? And sometimes that takes a little bit. Sometimes we tend to group things like this. We think that everything from Hollywood is bad, but everything on religious TV is good. You know how messed up that is? Historically, on religious television, there has been a lot of damage done. There's been a lot of bad guys utilizing it as a means by which to take advantage of people. So once again, we cannot simply follow labels. Oh, that has a Christian label on it, that means it's healthy. Oh, that doesn't have a Christian label on it, therefore it's highly suspect and it must be bad. That's not how it works. God moves through all sorts of things. Truth is truth. God moves through all sorts of people, whether they are acknowledging his kingship or not, right? Like there's inspiration. There is anointing on people that are still pre-Christian. 
meaning that God is moving through them and getting something into the dialogue in society, but they still don't know he's the one running the show. So we got to be very careful of going, well, as long as it's called a church thing, it must be good. That is incorrect. We have to be far sharper than that. The reality is, is that we live in a world of people, and people are messy. Sometimes they're good guys, sometimes they're bad guys. They got both hero and monster in them that, once again, it's not always easy to tell. And one of the things that makes it more difficult to discern is that we live in a world of people wearing masks. It would be one thing if people would really portray themselves as they are, but none of us do. We all portray ourselves as healthier than we really are. We portray ourselves as more successful than we really are. We portray ourselves as more Christian than we really are. We all seem to portray ourselves as whatever, and there's many reasons why we do that. One of them may be that we have been rejected in the past, so therefore we hide behind a mask, we put that up, and then we realize, well, it's comfortable back here, and now everybody only knows our mask, so we can't take the mask off. If we take the mask off, they're going to reject us again, so we live behind that the entire time. Everything about social media posts is hiding behind a mask, and that's how we operate. So how am I supposed to know if you're a good guy, bad guy, good girl, bad girl? How am I supposed to know any of that stuff when I don't even know who you are? You don't portray to me at all who you really are. In the same way about me, if I'm going to be up here, I'm only going to be so honest, I'm only going to be able to portray so much because the environment can only support so much transparency and honesty. So you're still making a lot of guesses even about me. So when we go through life, we just need to realize the fill in the blank. It's what? Things aren't always as they seem. Things aren't always as they seem, but it's not an accident. There's a reason why the world is so complicated. It's not that God blew it, God made a bad world. Remember, God started out absolutely perfect. We actually refer to it as paradise, right? He starts out in the Garden of Eden. God did it right. We messed it up. Why do we mess it up? Because there's an active and alive enemy of God seeking to disrupt anything that God is doing. That is what we're going to start out studying. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24? Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, if you're brand new to the Bible... Drop your Bible open to the middle, go to the right. You're going to eventually find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the four big books kind of in the New Testament. We just want to stop at the first one there. Matthew 13, verse 24. Now, when Jesus told these stories, these parables, he would tell them out in public with people, and I would imagine that the disciples all gathered around him, and while he's telling the story, they're like, yeah, amen, 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 that's right, that's right, yep. And then they go back to the house and they're like, yeah, I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> like, I was just amening because that seemed like the right thing to do. What? what? What do you mean? And then Jesus would slow everything down and tell them, here's what the story means. What we're going to do for our lack of time is I'm going to take his explanation six verses later, import it back into the story, and we're going to read the story with the answers in it. All right? Here's how it's going to look. Matthew 13, 24. He, meaning Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, that man is Jesus, who sowed good seed or true Christians into his field of the world. But while his men, the angels, were for the story purpose sleeping, 
His enemy, the devil, came and sowed weeds or anti-Christians or anti-Christian sentiment or anti-Christian ideas among the wheat of the world and went away and hid. So when the plants came up and bore grain, weeds appeared also, meaning as the world went on, it was revealed it was a complicated mess. So the servants or the angels of the master of the house, Jesus, came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Why does it have so many weeds? In other words, why is the world so messed up? He, Jesus, said to them, an enemy, the devil, has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather up and pull all the bad guys out of the world? But he said, no, lest in gathering the bad guys, you root up the good guys along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest at the end of time. And at harvest time, I'm going to tell my other angels, the reapers, gather the bad guys first, bind them in bundles to be burned in the lake of fire, but gather the wheat into my barn, the good guys, and I'll take them home with me to heaven. Okay, that's the story. What the story means is that there's a system whereby it's complicated. You look out and you go, man, so everyone in the church is good, right? No. Oh, so everyone in the world's bad, right? No. It's a mixture of people. People are complicated. All right. It also suggests to me that there's a conflict of a kingdom clash. You have God's kingdom trying to advance. You have the enemy trying to hang on to territory. But what that means is that we as Christians are empowered and called by God to advance the kingdom by which the gates of hell cannot prevail. Meaning we are supposed to be kingdom advancers in whatever form that takes. If there is any holdout area where the enemy has control, we now have been empowered and authorized to go in and break it open and set people free. It's what we do. All right, so this is what we're going to lean into. Um, I have shared back in parts one through three of the series kind of this whole idea of the kingdoms how Satan got his kingdom idea and where, how God's working his kingdom. So if you want to know a little bit more about that, you can always go back and listen to parts one through three. But I do want to recap, and I'm trying to answer this question. It looks like Satan's in charge, but he's not. So how did that happen? This is what we're going to solve. So I'm going to be reading out of Matthew 4, 8. Just, it's the temptation story of Jesus. I'm only going to read the last, the third of the three temptations. It says this, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, here's what this means to me. 2,000 years ago when Jesus showed up on this planet, Satan had very firm control over the world. He could literally say, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Yeah, I have control of those. You go, hold up, pastor. You just said that Satan wasn't in charge, but now you're saying he has control. And my answer is, yep. Well, how does that work? Because there's a big difference between authority and control. 
God has always had the authority. King Jesus is always the authority. If you want to talk about who's in charge, it's the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is in charge. But who has the control? The control is handed or handled by anyone that is willing to force their agenda. Who's forcing the agenda in the world today? Satan. Therefore, Satan has an awful lot of control because control means pressing people to do something they may not even want to do. Satan has been the bully leader running around in the world getting people to do what he wants them to do. That means he has practical control, but he's not the authority. So what happened? Jesus showed up and said, hi, I'm the real authority. Showed up and said, by the time I'm done, I am going to wreck your world. I am coming in and my kingdom will expand and I'm going to so empower my followers that they can go wherever they need to go and you need to get out of their way. Now, we're going to study about how exactly that went down, but I do want us, anytime we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, we're going to be talking about dealing with the demonic, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, anytime we do that, we need to resettle back into who Jesus really is. There are too many of us that have still have this bogus notion of who Jesus is. We think he is some pale white guy with blue eyes on TV. Y'all following me? Like someone needs to adjust the color on the set. You know what I'm saying? Like what in the world is going on there? Okay, but here's the other thing that bothers me. Why is he always talking in a British accent? I find that very strange. He is not British, just pointing that out. But I guess in American television, anyone that speaks anything other than English is British. Okay, <laughs> praise the Lord. Now, we always think about Jesus hanging on the cross as if that is the summation of all that he is, but we realize that is not true. Jesus is so much more than the suffering servant. He is also the mighty king. So in order to clear that up, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae a description of who Jesus was and who he is. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. It skips on and says, in everything, Jesus is preeminent, the leader of all things, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What's the point? Jesus is in charge. And if you are a son or daughter of God, you're on his team, and his team has power and authority to advance. Yeah? That is who we are. So how in the world did Jesus orchestrate it so that we could go out and have victory? Well, that actually picks up in Matthew 12, 22. Turn with me there, Matthew 12, 22. It's a story we referred to earlier in the series. I just want to recap it. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Messiah, the son of David? But when the Pharisees or religious leaders who didn't like Jesus heard that, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, the devil, that Jesus casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, 
He's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? Let me paraphrase. Jesus said, hey, guys, that's stupid. (laughs) All right, back to the story. Verse 27. He said, and if I cast out demons by the devil, by whom do your followers cast them out? They will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what is the point of this story? For whatever reason and however he did it, Jesus bound the enemy so that he doesn't get to have the same level of control over believers in this world. It means that we are empowered and authorized to go in advance, amen? Amen, that is true. We as Christians are able to cast out that which is darkness, that light may come in and healing may remain. What's the point? To remove that which is evil so that worship can take root. Everything is for the glory of God. All right, the other thing that it seems to say is that in this conflict, the kingdom of God is pushing away or pushing out or backing up that which is of the devil. Now, this is where I'm saying this is what you and I are supposed to be doing. And this is where you go, uh, hold up. Are you talking about demon stuff? Like, are you kidding me? Like, are you telling me that just because I'm a Christian now that I'm supposed to go out and do exorcisms, right? And I go, um, kind of. So let's talk about this. Uh, So many of us just don't really know how the whole demon thing works. So here you go. Here's five quick points on demonology. You ready? Here we go. Five points on demonology. You're like, man, I avoided seminary for this very reason. All right? Well, hey, you went to the wrong church. Here we go. Number one, write these down. Five quick facts on demons. Number one, demons are fallen spiritual beings. Demons are fallen spiritual beings. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. What do you call angels? Well, I call them angels. All right, well, do you mean cherubim, seraphim, warrior angels, messenger angels? What are you talking about? Well, I don't know. Those things. Okay, cool. So there's a whole unseen spiritual race out there that we refer to as angels. Well, if we're reading the Bible correctly, one-third of whatever that crew is decided to partner with a bad guy, and now they are called fallen angels. Now, once again, we need to clear up how Hollywood has distorted this stuff. Because here's basically how we picture it. Every angel is some buff dude wearing some type of sash, I don't know why, and some type of robe, right? And they can only fight with swords if they have anything at all. Now, when we talk about demons, oh, now they're all little creatures that look reptilian of some sort, and they're running about. Now, why in the world would that be the case? Are they not the exact same creatures? One is fallen and one is still hanging with the Lord. So why can Satan masquerade as an angel of light? Because he looks like an angel of light. There you go. So this whole business about we're going to allow Hollywood to tell us what's real in the Bible is silly. Yeah? So once again, whatever is going on in that being, we just need to understand they are fallen, rebellious, heavenly beings. All right, that's number one. Number two. Write this down. They follow their leader. I don't know how it's organized. I don't know why. I don't understand how the hierarchy works. And I will caution you. 
although I want to say that I am very um, new-ish to the realm of studying demonology and all that, there are some people that have been doing it their whole lives and they know more than I do. But I do want to caution you that an awful lot of what is said about demons is not always biblical. There's not a lot in the Bible that explains it, so everybody has to get the information from somewhere else. So I, just, I would just caution you on how much you're gonna hardcore believe all the books that talk about how the demonic world works. Um, a lot of that is guessing, okay? So having said that, I'm gonna say I don't know much about how it's organized. What I do know is they all tend to work off one agenda. The agenda is what? To wreck what God likes. There you go, that's their big agenda. All right, number three. They know they lose. They know they lose. That's why they're so unsettled, because they know who Jesus really is. They know who Jesus is better than we know who Jesus is, and they freak out about it. Why? Because they're going to the abyss at some point. They're going to go into the lake of fire at some point. Whether it's way then or now really depends on whether you tick off Jesus. Does that make sense? So they're very clear on their theology. They've already read Revelation. They know how it all ends right? And so they're very clear on that. Number four, they know who we are. They know who we are. Now, most human beings in the world are very easily manipulated. So the enemy can basically toy with whoever they want. Why? Because most beings are open doors. You can just kind of come and go as you wish. But then there's these problematic people called Christians. Now, these Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit says, nope, you don't get to do whatever you want to do. I'm here, and this is my house. This is my kid. This is my territory. You understand what I'm saying? So when he is there, well, that makes a problem. So now most demons would like to avoid you entirely. Why? Because at some point, if they get you agitated, then you start praying against them, and then it's going to cause a problem. So just keep a low profile and stay out of the way. But if they want to go after you for whatever reason, then they will do so, and I'll explain in a moment how that works. But let me explain this, and this is very important. The less we are aware of our true Christian identity, power, and authority, the less of a threat we are to them. So why do you think I focus on Christian identity so much at Bridgeway? right? There's a bunch of reasons why. So let's write down number five. What's their job? They distract and disrupt. They distract and disrupt. Their desire is to render Christians inoperative, however, which means it could be attack, it could be temptation, it could be distraction, it could be whatever. The whole point is to get you off your game. Because if you're locked and loaded for Jesus, you're a problem. So, for most of us, they'll try to just convince us they don't exist. For the rest of us, they're going to kind of steer around us. Very few will ever go head on unless they feel like they can bully you, right? And they operate a lot off bullying tactics, which is usually based on fear, okay? So, I, I'm usually very cautious when I talk about the demon stuff to not have an air of fear about it, right? We don't need them to have more authority. Does that make sense? All right. So here's the key fact. The key fact is this. Theoretically, we as Christians have the power through the name of Jesus Christ, through the power in his blood, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to command and direct the enemy. 
I said theoretically. Why? Because many of us are still not certain of our identity in Christ. Many of us are not connected tightly to the Holy Spirit, and so we're not seeing the effects of power and authority. That's why we're in this series, right? I want to remind you of who you are. Okay, so when we're going to deal with the demonic, and I'll tell you a story in a second, I want you to have two principles in mind. Number one, it's him, not you. What do I mean? I want you to picture any spiritual warfare, especially direct dealings with a demonic. I want you to picture it like this. You're going down the street in a very bad part of the city. There's a bunch of thugs that are harassing someone. And you walk up to them as a good citizen and you say, hey, you guys, leave them alone. And they turn and look at you and go, are you kidding me? And then they look at who's behind you and they leave. What is my point? My point is we are not impressive. The Bible says that we are made lower than the angels. We're not all that big of a deal, but the one dwelling in us, huge deal. So when they look at us, they always have to dart their eyes over to him, like, oh, shoot, he's here, right? That makes them very, very worried. So whenever you're dealing with anything like that, remember, you're not coming in your own strength. You're coming in the name and power and presence of Jesus Christ, the King. That's how we do it. Now, the second thing that you have to remember as far as a principle is it's not about demon hunting. It's about setting the captives free. Our motivation for doing any spiritual warfare should be compassion for the person we're trying to set free. It's not for flash and flare. It's not for fun and games. It's not for anything else but practical ministry. You know, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're talking about exorcism? Are you talking about practical ministry? Is someone being bullied? Well, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to allow that. So I got to do something, and God gave me the ability to do something, and we do something. That's just kind of how it works. All right, let me tell you a story on how this looks. Many, many years ago, uh, we were contacted uh, as a church uh, about a couple that was going to church here, and um, I don't tell a lot of these stories. I have a number of these stories, but I don't tell them normally because uh, of confidentiality reasons. I try to keep that if I deal with something with you spiritually, I don't betray your confidence or betray your privacy. So I tend to be very quiet. This couple no longer goes here. This was many years ago, a whole different building, lifetime ago. Now, we were contacted by a woman who said, I believe that my husband has a demon. I believe that he is demon-possessed. We said, well, why do you think that? And she's like, well, he had been dealing with the occult. There's a lot of signs about it. And honestly, our house, there's something wrong. There's stuff going in and out of our house. There's things happening that I cannot explain. It's not a good situation. And we said, all right, bring him in. Uh, does he want to be free? Yes, he does. Does he profess Jesus? Actually, yes, he does. Okay, well, whatever. Here we go. Let's bring him in. Well, they came in and they brought their friend with them. Now, their friend is the one who had been ministering to them the whole time. This guy is one of the heroes of mine. I love this guy. He's enormous, right? Anyone taller than me is called enormous, <laughs> right? Now, I'm, you know, I hate looking up to people because I'm 6'3", and if I have to look up to you, I'm already intimidated. So this guy's like 6'4", 6'5", and solid built dude. So he comes in and he's only there to support and love on. So he's like, all right, I'll be here with my friends. 
they're my concern. So he's kind of a defender. So we bring him into a room, and in that room, there is a love seat. The love seat, the one guy sits down, dude that we're praying for, and then friend, big friend dude, sits down next to him. Now, small love seat, two big dudes, there's no room for wife. Make sense? So wife sits on the other side of friend on the arm of the love seat. So she's kind of reaching around behind and, and laying hands on him as we pray for him. So the rest of us gather around. I'm one of those guys that pray with my eyes closed and I get up close and personal and all my prayer stuff. So I'm sitting right in front of him, laying my hands on his knees like, here we go. We're going in to do some, some spiritual stuff. Now, I gotta tell you this. Closing your eyes while you pray is not in the Bible. Just real quick, just letting everybody know that. The reason you and I do it is because our mommies and daddies told us to close your eyes and bow your head. That's not in the Bible, okay? So as a matter of fact, if we wanna talk about what's probably a little more mature is praying with your eyes open. I am not that mature. I pray with my eyes closed because I get distracted really easy, right? So other people pray with their eyes, uh, eyes open because when they deal with demonic, they are freaked out. So I'm like, whatever, it's either all Jesus or it's not. I'm going all in. I'm closing my eyes. So we start praying for this dude. And I have to say, we're, we're doing some pretty good prayers. <laughs> Just, I mean, you know, I'm saying so. Nothing. Nothing is going on. And so after we're praying for a while and there's no advancement, I betray my rule and I peek right? I'm like one eye open. I'm like, ha what's going on here? Like, what is happening? So I, I, I look and I'll tell you, when this guy walked in, he looked so beat down and just so sad and tired. All of a sudden I look up at him and remember, I'm holding onto his knees. So I'm right next to him. He has the most smug, self-righteous look on his face. And he's just smirking and looking at us like, you guys are a joke. Like, who do you think you are? And I was like, oh, dang, it's on, right? Like what, oh, we're gonna duke it out here now. So I'm like, well, I will pray louder then, right? You know, which really doesn't help, side note. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm like, all right, so I start, I start uh, praying more. Well, we were kind of doing what's called popcorn praying, right? Where you got everybody just kind of prays in their own way. Well, then his wife, Praise. Now, she comes from a more charismatic background where she's comfortable praying in her prayer language. Now, prayer language is different than praying in tongues. Sounds the same, but the tongues is for a corporate body and it needs an interpreter. This is just her simply praying as her own heart. So she starts praying in tongues. The instant she starts praying in tongues, the atmosphere shifts. And I was like, uh-oh. So I peek again. <clears throat> And his face changes again. And he is so angry. He looks like he's ready to tear somebody up. So all of a sudden he turns and he looks at his wife like, I'm taking you out. He starts to get up off the couch, right? And it was like, uh-oh, how's this gonna go? Big friend moves right in front of him, looks him dead in the eye and he goes, don't look at her, you look at me. Leans his forehead right on his head and he goes, you keep staring at me. And I was like, oh, dang, that's awesome, right? I was like, woo, right? And, uh, and so then we're like, ha there's an opening. We're like, ah, and then we all you know, start praying like crazy. And anyway, uh, just to zoom the story forward, by the time that day is done, he's asleep on the couch, all demons gone. Praise God. Yeah. 
Now, once again, I told you that it's very important that if you're going to set someone free, they, want to desire, they need to desire to be free. Um, in touching base periodically throughout the years, he had re-engaged with some of the stuff that he was involved in before, and once again, that doesn't mean everything went well. What I'm trying to tell you is that if somebody is being picked on by the enemy and they would like not to be picked on, Christians should step up. That's you. You're like, well, I've got to take it to a pastor. Hold on. You have the same Holy Spirit I do. You're connected to the same King Jesus I am. Why do you think you know them and I don't know them? Because you're on. Let's do this. You know what it looks like to do an exorcism? It looks like a prayer meeting. Does that sound scary? It shouldn't. It's a prayer meeting, you guys. What do you know how to do? Pray. Let's do that, yeah? So if it's so confusing and there's all this stuff going on, you're like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And how's God going to sort it out? Well, here we go. Matthew 13, 47, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the bottom line. In the end, God's going to sort it out. Until then, it's confusing. So be very careful on throwing your judgments around. Oh, that person's totally legit. That person's not legit. You know what? People morph. What I'm trying to tell you is that until Jesus sorts it out, we can only test fruit. What's going on in their life? What's happening in their, what? The production of their activity. What is their spirit like? What's going on with them? What's happening? We have to do that. Some of us are good at it and some of us aren't very good at it. But let God be God. He knows how to sort stuff. He'll figure that out. But you have to ask the question, what is the sifting process gonna be like? How, do you, how does he determine who are the good fish and the bad fish? Well, the Bible tells us two key stories that tell us exactly how God sifts. So let's take a look at Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31. Jesus told this story. He said, when I come back, or when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Well, I'm going to paraphrase the rest of the story. The righteous people say, Lord, when did we ever see you like that? And he said, as you have done to the least of my brothers, you've done to me. Well, then he turns to the other group, the bad guy group, and he says, you guys go away from me. And they said, I don't understand. Why? And he said, because I was hungry, and you didn't do anything about it. I was thirsty. You didn't do anything about it. You didn't do any kingdom living. You didn't minister to my needs. They said, Lord, when did we ever see you in need? He said, as you have done the least of these, you've done unto me. What does that story mean? It means actions matter. This whole business about I'm a Christian, but I keep it to myself, and I just kind of think nice thoughts, do you realize that's not a thing? Like, that's not even Christianity. So I'm not sure what it is, but it's not Christianity. Because any true faith, any true relationship with God will absolutely pour out in action. It has to, because you get transformed by God and your thoughts 
starts to track with his thoughts and his heart begins to import into your heart and he's got stuff he wants to do and we gotta be doing that stuff. But in order to balance out what the sifting process is, let me read one other story. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the point? Actions are important, but relationship is the most important. You can't, Jesus said, I don't know you personally. You're doing a lot of religious stuff. You're doing a lot of things. I'm telling you, we weren't connected. The ultimate decision of sifting the good from the bad is do you know Jesus? Your personal relationship with Jesus is the most important thing about you. Now, if it's legit, it will, without exception, cause a change in your lifestyle. You have to be different because of Jesus. If you're not different and living out a life like Christ, I'm not saying perfect, then there might be something wrong with the root. So if that is the case, then where are you at? This is where we get back to it and we say, okay, pastor, so I, I, I heard all that you said. What do you want me to do? I'll tell you what I want you to do. I'll tell you what I want me to do. Because you and I are in the same boat. I'll tell you what I want us to do. Ready? I want us to live with a relationship with Jesus and live legitimate right now. That's what I want. What do I want? I want us to know who we are in Jesus Christ. I want us to know who he is. I want us to live out who we really are. That's what I want. I want us to be true to our identity. I want us to understand the authority and power of God. I want us to be kingdom builders. I want us to advance his kingdom. And if anything of the enemy stands in the way, I want it moved out. I want people set free. I want us to be a factor in our neighborhoods. I want us to be a factor in our jobs. I want us to just be who we are. Amen. You're Christians. Do you know what that means? Man, it means a lot. So can I have the prayer team come on up here? Here's how we're going to close. I'm just going to pray an encouragement prayer over you, that you would know who you are, that you would live according to your real identity, that you'd get fired up for the Lord, right? But I also want to add this. If I'm going through that sifting process and you're like, I don't think I have a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I can tell you what scripture says about it. You ready? Today's the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you go, yep, I want in. That's what our prayer team's here for. They know how to answer that question. Right after service, you come up and go, I wanna be a Christian. All right, we can do that. It's all about starting a love relationship with God. We're not doing it out of fear. We're not doing it for any other reason, but that, man, he loves you. And when his love finally melts your heart, why would you want to be anywhere else but walking with him? Let me just close and pray over you. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for your power and your kindness and your patience. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in each and every believer here. God, I just pray for anyone that can hear the sound of my voice, 
that, Lord, that you would encourage them and empower them, that they would rise up and say, I want to be who I was built to be, that they would no longer settle for anything less than full you. So God, I pray that whatever the enemy has them in distraction or whatever he's messed with me about lies or whatever's going on, Lord, I just pray you'd shove it all back and let us just hear from you because you're the only one that matters. So King Jesus, be glorified in your people. Be glorified in your kids. Your love, may it move us to living rightly. May we be motivated by nothing else but by your love and your power. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.